Hey, what's up, everyone? Welcome to episode 19 of The Best Thing. I'm Antonio Neves, and I'm so excited for you to hear this episode with Chase Jarvis. I promise you, you are going to love it. Before we get into it, I want to remind you, if you haven't already subscribed to the podcast, please do so right now on whatever podcast platform you're listening on. If you're digging this podcast as much as people say they are digging it, I would love for you to take a moment to either A, send this to a friend, family member, someone in your community that you think will love it as well, and also consider writing a short review for me on the podcast platform you're listening to this on. That will go a long way to get as many people as possible exposed to the best thing. Also, right now, as I've told you before, I want you to head over to my website, theantonionevs.com. I've been regularly putting together key information that you can use to navigate this unique time that we're in. When you head over to theantonionevs.com, something will pop up. You enter your name, your email, check your email inbox. Before you know it, you got something right there for free to help you out on your journey. Last thing, before we dig in, uh, because of this thing called the internet, the audio in this episode gets a little bit funky here in there. Nothing crazy. You may not even notice it. But if you do, I just want you to know that I know I'm not oblivious to it. I heard it too. Anyhow, let's get into this episode with Chase Jarvis. You're going to love it. Welcome to the Best Thing Podcast, where we talk to thought leaders, creatives, authors, and entrepreneurs about how sometimes the best thing to happen to you is the most unexpected. Welcome your host, Antonio Neves. Hey everyone, welcome to the Best Thing Podcast, where I talk to people about the best thing to ever to happen to them that would rarely show up on a resume, bio, or come up in conversation. I'm your host, Antonio Neves. I'm a speaker, author, and coach. And each week I bring on a guest who has a powerful story to tell that will motivate, inspire, and help you see life through a new lens. Now, this week's guest is someone I met at a dinner in Seattle quite a few years back, but I've been fortunate enough over the years to break bread with him, drink a cocktail or two with him, and also work with him and his team. Chase Jarvis is an award-winning artist, entrepreneur, and one of the most influential photographers of the past decade. He has created campaigns for Apple, Nike, Red Bull, and countless other worldwide brands. Now, if I listed all of the major athletes and celebrities he's photographed over the years, we'd never get to the interview. As founder of Creative Live, where I've hosted a few courses, Chase has helped more than 10 million students learn photography, video, design, music, and business from the world's top creators and entrepreneurs. Now, Chase is also author of the phenomenal book, Creative Calling, Establish a Daily Practice, Infuse Your World with Meaning, and Succeed in Work and Life. This book has received worldwide praise, not just from readers, but also from the likes of Sir Richard Branson, Brene Brown, Seth Godin, Damon John, and more. I'm really excited to have him here. Chase Jarvis, welcome to The Best Thing. My man, that is, uh, I just recorded that myself. I'm going to play that anytime I walk on a stage. Will you be my hype man? I'll be a hype man anytime. <laughs> I even I even fumbled a few words, but you like I'm like okay, you know what? I'm going with it. It's, oh, it's man, okay. Oh man, you're you're a pro. You're a pro. I uh, I cherish this time together with you, man. Thanks for yeah. having me on the show, and congrats on making a a great podcast. I appreciate that. I have to ask you since you mentioned that great intro. When you hear your podcast, excuse me. When you hear your intro, when people introduce you, when you hear those things, 
Does that like, does it sound like they're talking about someone else? Does it blow you away or is it just, just power for the course when you hear it these days? Oh man. Um, honestly, a lot of those things, I think those are things that a lot of people, other people recognize. And I, I learned from uh, a legend who I shouldn't say that this person gave me this thing, but a, a legend once taught me that you should have someone else read your bio. That way you don't have to do any qualifying because it either sounds weird when you're doing it or, you know, you're going to get caught up in that. And so I've managed to, uh, haven't, you know, speaking a lot and, um, and been in front of on this side of the camera or the microphone for long enough to uh, not get caught up in accolades. What you forgot to mention was the Emmy nominations. Uh, you didn't mention the photo awards, nor the, uh, the contribution to the Pulitzer Prize winning story, Snowfall. Uh, I'm just jesting, of course, but <laughs> I've, I've heard enough that I most, I've mostly ignored. And I always feel like there's a job to do, which is to share a lot of, uh, hopefully valuable information in uh, as a tidy uh, package as we can give it to your listeners today. Yeah, man. You've been doing that for a variety of years. I didn't even mention your amazing podcast, the show you do. There's so much that you do and we'll have all that information in the show notes. I do want to ask before we dig in uh, to the question for the podcast is to talk a little bit about uh, Creative Live. Again, I've had an opportunity to host courses with Creative Live. Oh, and- man. You're like the legend. Oh, You've man. So many. I don't know how you probably, you're probably the host of, I don't know, 150, uh, something like that. A few maybe, of them, man. Maybe 30, 50. I don't know. It feels like forever, but. Yeah, so much fun hosting shows with Ryan Holiday and other folks. But right now, in this unique time that we're in, we were talking before we hit record with, with COVID 19 going on the role that Creative Live is playing in those people who are isolated at home, limited access to the outside world, education, et cetera, the role that it's uh, helping them right now with. Yeah, man. You know, when, well, Creative Live is 10 years old now. And, um, you know, we, we say in the intro, like has helped, you know, tens of millions of people. And truth be told, we don't, we don't know how many it's helped. But what I can say is when you're building something 10 years ago, or you're building something you can't see 10 years into the future and you, you have a vision and a mission and we've been acting on that mission and vision for, for 10 years now, but nobody in our world saw what we're currently living in with the COVID-19 stuff. And to find out that what you've been working on is magically able to help a whole new swath of people in a time of need you know, the first thing we did was made all of our health and wellness classes, our top, I think, 20-something health and wellness classes, both mental um, things like meditation and mindfulness and also physical things like workouts and yoga and whatnot. We made those free. And that's still the case. You can go to creativelive.com slash wellness classes and, and participate in any of those for free right now. So to be able to activate on something like that, like in the first, you know, half a dozen days or something like that, it felt so good to be useful. And... Uh, you know, the fact that if you're listening to this, we, we should acknowledge that there's a billion people who still don't have access to clean drinking water. So I don't want to talk about this, like o- only a rosy picture, but if you're listening to this, that means you're probably in, you know, a first or, or second world country and you have access to the internet and to media. And if that's the case, you know, and we are able to provide, you know, we've provided billions of minutes of free learning. That's always been a, a key piece of creative live that, if you want to own the content and watch it over and over and over again, or you want to watch it on your schedule, that's great if you have the means to do that. But a huge piece of our vision from day one was to be able to provide free access. And so 
to to have been building that for 10 years and just to become extra relevant right now, I just thank my lucky stars. And I have so many friends and peers who are in lines that, that are the best in the world at whatever they're doing, whether they're athletes and their sport has been shut down or whether they're authors or the, and their books weren't published or, you know, restaurateurs and people can't go out to eat. Like it's so indiscriminate and unfair. And it feels terrible to me uh, to see them hurting the thing that I can do and the team at Creative Live, we can do is just go to work and go to work providing as much value as we can. So I appreciate you acknowledging that. And um, it's a it's a head scratcher to me, but I'll tell you that we're working harder than ever. We have a lean team and we're just, we're busting our butts trying to make sure that most people out there have access to conversations like this one we're having today and, you know, and more than uh, 2000 other classes at Creative Live. So thanks for for the shout out, man. I appreciate it. Absolutely. One thing that's been, I think, a pillar of, of your career is giving, is sharing. Even prior to Creative Live, you've been hitting record for a long time. Even when YouTube was in its infancy, when it wasn't the most popular platform, you've been doing tutorials, sharing information, and not even making asks. Like, here, I'm going to teach you how to do X, Y, or Z. For you, is, is that ethos personal? Does someone in your family influence you to be such a giver? Hmm. Not to diss my family, but no. <laughs> you know, I, you know, it 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 came from there was a realization when I, you know, I quit every plan that everybody else had for me as a as you know early early twenties, and um, you know we can talk about that a little bit later. But in doing so, I quit the plans that everyone else had for me to pursue photography and. In doing so, I didn't, I was just deeply passionate about it and I was intrigued and largely curious. And I looked around and there was very few resources. You know, it was like, I had literally learned photography from reading actual books and using actual film. And by books, I mean, going to the library and it was painful for me. And as the internet started to emerge, I was looking, you know, hungry for information, hungry to work and collaborate with other people. And mostly at that time, the system was very closed and there wasn't an opportunity to intern for other people or to learn from their mistakes or to this concept of sharing that is so commonplace now. And so I was actually really craving that. I was craving access to good information from reliable sources and people who cared. And when I realized that there wasn't a lot of that going on, I was like, well, you know, maybe if I start sharing with things that I know something about that other people will you know, either reciprocate or be motivated or inspired to share what they know. And maybe we can create a little community for creators as we're all sort of on this journey together. And um, so it was in, in part started out of a utility. Like I, I really, I needed information and I wanted to give away the information that I had. So in starting to do so, and it did in fact have that sort of that reciprocal nature that you know, drives a huge part of human behavior. Someone gives you something, you're more compelled to give them something as well. So almost a barter, a community situation that was evolved in early, early internet, I think is the true. And then I saw the true power of it. And that just made me want a 10X. Yeah, I got to say, and I listened to pretty much every podcast show you've been on. I love to, of course, follow your trajectory, your career. And I've been listening for a really long time. I got to say though, man, I, I was really surprised even though you've contributed to other books, that this book, Creative Calling, came out when it did. Because as the giver that you are, the person that likes to share information, my assumption, even thinking back to when I saw you give a brilliant talk in Omaha, Nebraska, a big Omaha, like in 2013 or something, 
I was like, oh man, that right there is a book. And of course, I'm sure publishers would have loved to have you write a book a long time ago. And I'm not sure if you've been asked this question, but why did it take to this point in your life beyond being a world-renowned photographer, beyond running companies, et cetera, to get this book, Creative Calling Out? Mm. <laughs> You're right. I have not been asked that question. So it's nice to not have a canned answer, I promise. And, and as I'm thinking about it, um, reality is the book's been something I've wanted to write for a really long time. But the, the nuance is that um, while I have written a thousand blog posts and I you know, had a million regular readers to my blog over the course, you know, starting way back in 2005, I don't consider myself a writer as my primary you know, creative output. As you said, I'm largely identified as a photographer or an entrepreneur. So the concept of writing a book was a little bit big and scary and doing your first one. You know, I had done two other previous photography books both that did really well. One was the first um, book in the world to feature uh, all photos from a mobile photo camera from an iPhone. And the second was a, you know, hardback art book. But if you dismiss those as sort of picture books, which is, you know, fine to do for this conversation, the idea of doing a, of biting off the big book um, to share about creativity and all that I've learned, not just in deconstructing my own successes and failures, but as you mentioned, having hundreds of guests, you know, like the Bransons and the Cubans and the Brene Browns and the Tim Ferrises and the Ariana Huffingtons on the, my podcast, also on Creative Live, you deconstruct the successes and failures of those people. And I really feel like between all I've experienced and those of my peers, I actually have something to say. And so, you know, I had a, I've had an agent for a long time. He's an amazing agent, uh, literary agent. And, you know, he's kicking me under the, sh under the table a little bit like, hey, man, I got a lot of people asking about your book. And uh, at some point, I had just amassed so much information and I felt so swollen and pregnant with this material that I had to get to work. So most people spend years writing or, or at least six months writing a book proposal. I don't know about what, what your all's experience was, but this, I wrote what I call my my eighth grade book report. I wrote the book proposal on a weekend. It was somewhere on the order of like 16 pages. So this is what I want to do. I sent it to my agent and I had two meetings in New York and I had a book deal, you know, by five o'clock the same day. So not traditional, but it had been brewing inside me for so long that when it, when, when the time was right, I kicked into action. And I think that's a, there's a patience in that. There's also a lesson in procrastination. I would have loved to have had it out a, a couple of years ago, but Thanks for asking. You, you, man, you know you're good at this stuff. Get us to open up. I, I love this. But two things jump out to me about that, and I promise we'll get into this question about the, <laughs> the best thing. I remember years ago, one of my favorite artists was this Canadian artist by the name of Chaos. And he had some work come out in the early 2000s, and he's still making great music. But I remember reading his liner notes in uh, his album, and it said something to the extent of, it took me my whole life to make this album. And it was his debut album, right? It took me my whole life. And he was in his mid-20s or, or late-20s or something. But it totally makes sense now for me having a book coming out soon and what you just uh, described, why this book took the time that it did. Uh, the second thing I want to add about that is not only did you dive in, decide to write an exceptional book, but I think about when I was in grad school for journalism. And I used to hate turning in my thesis because I'd always get it back covered in red ink. And I just would hate the red ink from these Pulitzer Prize-winning authors. And one day, uh, when my grad... My thesis uh, advisor saw saw that I hated getting this note these notes back. And he said, "What's wrong?" And I said, "It's going to come back with all this red ink." And he said, "Don't you know you pay for the red ink?" And that brings me to when I was looking at your book, 
while you're writing this book, man, you got some red ink from people like Tim Ferriss, Brene Brown. I think he said Robert Greed, Seth Godin. That must have been freaking <laughs> intimidating. But it also shows me that you wanted to win because yeah. you gave it to the best to get that feedback and you opened yourself up to that, which I think far too many uh, are unwilling to do. Yeah, I. it's true, man. I wanted to write a book about creativity that was different than any book I'd written. I'd read about creativity. And I've read most of them, certainly a hundred or so of them. And uh, and while I took something brilliant from from all of them, to me, they all took an approach to creativity that was different than I did. One was that creativity was this very, very special and precious thing. And two is that it was um, it was a very narrow definition of creativity. And so the book that I wanted to write, Creative Calling, tried to tackle these two things. One, you know, help people understand that creativity is in popsicle sticks and pipe cleaners and glitter, what we were taught in second grade, that it is in fact the most powerful human tool that we have, that we were given the ability to put multiple ideas together to form new useful things. Like look around, like literally everything around you was created. And you start to think about that, like what use is creativity? And then you say, Oh, like literally everything was created. And you said, okay, that's cool. That's practical. And if you can take it out of the just art world and put it into right now, for example, man, we're co-creating this conversation. I could send us off in a different direction. You can send us off in a different direction. And the same is true for anyone at any time. So when you start to realize that creativity with a capital C is this massive thing, to me, that made it relevant to everybody, which is important. And then thing two, the fact that it's not precious, that it's this infinite, you know, Maya Angelou says it best, creativity is an infinite resource. The more you use, the more you get. And to me, those two things combined, like that is what I wanted this book to be about. I wanted it to be for every human. And it's in creating in small daily ways, whether it's a podcast or dinner or driving home a separate way or co-creating, again, this conversation. It's in doing that every day that you actually realize that you can create your life. So, you know, I just, I needed to tackle those two things. Um, and if anyone's interested, I think whenever this thing's going to drop, the, the I just got news from the publisher that they're going to make the, uh, there's an ebook sale coming up for $1.99. So yeah, we're in a COVID world where it's hard to get things delivered. This will be instant delivery and at $1.99. And we had to go to bat pretty hard for that, um, you know, for best best selling hardback book to, to be priced like that. So hopefully that's a, a win for anyone who's listening. Yeah, it's a gift to a lot of people. And what I love about your book is at some point you write, I wrote this book to help you unlock a hidden part of yourself. And what's been dope is looking at the reviews of the book and looking at what people have shared on social media. And I think to your point about this book, you know, $1.99, the number you just gave, regardless, what a perfect time to read this book more than ever. Yeah. Again, you don't, when we set out to create Creative Live, you don't know that it's going to be, something's going to be well-timed. And there's plenty of things in my life that have been not (laughs) well-timed. So, um, you know, I guess the universe has a way of looking out for us. So um, I hope, yeah, I do think it's it's very well-timed and for the price, you know, less than a price of a cup of coffee. I um, hope to give you some inspiration. It's very actionable also. It's not just this sort of warm, fuzzy thing. It's a little bit of tough love in there. Absolutely, man. So let, let's get into this question, man. Thank you for like that. that that's just been fun for me right there. I, I feel I feel nourished already. But the question we talked about on this podcast is having people share what's the the best thing to happen to them 
Um, well, if I haven't said it already, how grateful I am to be on the show. Um, I want to say it again. And the second thing is that like this question is, is powerful and evocative. And I do think it's a very well, well focused show because, you know, this is like what I would want to know from so many of my creative and entrepreneurial heroes. So I appreciate being asked the question. One of the things when I deconstructed my own life that I recognized, and it's important for me to share that I came from relative privilege, very middle of the road, middle, lower middle class economically, but I was born white. Um, I was born male. I was born in America. I was born, you know, in the the seventies. And that's pretty much is that's the lottery, right? When you think about it. So what I'm about to share that was very, very hard for me. Um, I want to acknowledge that if this was hard for me, basically born into all that different privilege, hopefully would be true for everyone. And it, it is a very simple idea. What is it? Simple, but not easy to wrap your mind around. It's simple concept, but not easy to manage. And there's the period where we're growing up, where we get feedback from so many people. We get feedback from our parents, our friends, our career counselors, our um, our peers, teachers, about what we should do with this one precious life that we get. And a lot of these are prescriptions um, that society thinks are valuable, like, oh, go up and be a doctor or a lawyer or a fill in the blank, whatever, you know, whatever background you came from. And for me, you know, my, I was the first person in my family to graduate from college. Um, I have a, a reasonably small family, but these voices were prominent. And the interesting thing is that these people care deeply about you, which is why they try and program you. They try and tell you what society has plans for you. And that if you go to these schools and get this grade and have this occupation that you're going to have this kind of a life. They essentially try and sell you a map and the map is, you know, what they point to history for that map. And this is, you know, if you do these things that were important when I was growing up or that, you know, my friends and peer groups like, and this moment for me came at the end of my college graduation and I had been studying medicine and playing uh, in division one soccer. I was playing on the Olympic development team um, at the time. And so my choices were really go to medical school or play professional soccer. And what I realized in studying medicine was that this was not actually exciting to me and I wanted to balance it. So I started studying philosophy and, and the opportunity came available to become a PhD in philosophy. And at some different point across three years, after the death of my grandfather, which, you know, that is a thing that I would also say that this, if there's a marker, it's the death of my grandfather, just um, out of nowhere, dropped dead from a heart attack. Um, one minute he was here, the next minute he was gone. And it was that moment, that horrible moment of trauma and tragedy that helped me understand that, wait a minute, I'm getting all this programming from people who, you know, the best intentions for me, but right now I'm forced with the choice. I can either, you know, pursue this thing that I'm really curious and passionate about, which was emerging at the time, which was for photography, or I can do all these other things that, that they've all set up for me or helped me achieve and took me to all the soccer practices and, you know, did all of the, um, you know, helped me get into schools and did all that stuff. I was either going to have to disappoint myself or disappoint the people who love me the most in the world and who had plans for me. And again, these plans are well-meaning 
and they're not like, you know, hey, go jump off a bridge. These plans are typically aspirational plans for our culture. And what I, why I want to share this moment on your show is because I believe that there, this happens to everyone. And what we don't teach in schools and what we don't talk about publicly and what I tried to write about in Creative Calling is that you get one precious life, one life. And that the number one regret of the dying is that they lived according to someone else's values and in pursuit of someone else's dreams. This is not like number four or number 10. This is the number one regret of people on their deathbed. And I had heard that and was just so shocked and confronted with the idea that at the end of this one precious life, I would have, and I was very close. That's the thing. It's like, I actually went to graduate school in philosophy. I pursued, I bailed on soccer. I quit medical school, but I was like, okay, fine. I'll do the PhD thing. And I, I went like a hundred grand into student debt, a hundred thousand dollars. And all of it, the whole time I knew I didn't care about it. And I was just doing it for other people. And when I finally got up enough guts to disappoint most of the most important people in my life, friends and peers, and when I, when I pivoted away from soccer, I mean, you got to say, you're like, you're not going to go play professional soccer in Europe. No, I'm going to go be a photographer. Like how many people do that or say that in our culture? I think it's rare, but to be able to do that, to know who you are, to know what you care about and to be able to communicate with compassion. And I'm not saying I did this well, I'm just saying I actually did it and it was uncomfortable and painful. I think there's a lot of ways that I screwed it up and challenged relationship with my, with family members and, and friends but it was the best thing I ever did. And it was the least expected. Uh, I, I didn't expect it because I'd been a people pleaser my whole life. I didn't expect it of myself, but that moment of my grandfather dying and looking down the barrel of a life that was for somebody else, it just terrified me. And this is you know, why I said, hey, to be fair, I'm, this is very privileged. It's privileged because I could make some choices. And I, it's, it's fair to say that a lot of people can't, but if you are listening to this podcast, you will be confronted with whether or not you can pursue the thing that you were put on this planet to do or disappoint others. And it's very important to let you know that if I'm helping myself, I'm not helping them. I think that's, a, that's an error in judgment because imagine if everyone on the planet was in the driver's seat for who they wanted to be and could become. And it's like the, the adage, you know, Remember those days we used to fly on airplanes, like put your own oxygen mask on before helping other passengers. If you can be doing that thing, there's no, no feeling of life and freedom and, and passion and pursuit and connection when you're doing the thing that you were put on this planet to do, even if it's weird, especially if it's weird, like there's nothing better because that allows you to be a better friend and peer and husband and community member and citizen and so many of these other things. And if we don't do those things, Things happen like pain and in bitterness and suffering. And, you know, we see ourselves as less than, and then we make others feel less than. So I'm going to try and say it in one sentence, the most, you know, the pivotal moments for me, and in this case, the pivotal moment was deciding to say yes to the thing that I knew in my heart was true for me, understanding what that was and saying yes to it at the cost of disappointing others, because that disappointment for others was temporary. And disappointment for myself, if I would have ignored that, would have been a lifetime. Man, there's so much. To I'm sorry. To, I'm sorry to have ranted for like 11 minutes there. <laughs> I, 
appreciate everything that you shared and so much just came up for me as you shared that. What really shared up, shared came up for me is that other people had plans for your life. And at some point you had to opt out. It's like clicking that box when you're about to buy something online, if you want to sign up for someone's newsletter or not, right? Mm-hmm. You had to unsubscribe from what their plans I did. were. I did, clicked unsubscribe. 100%. And what's also unique about that, and you said in the youth that you were that young age that maybe you didn't do it the right way. But sometimes when we do the, uh, we're going to use the word unsubscribe moving forward, it can be a little bit messy, mm-hmm. right? And I think mm-hmm. a lot of people are afraid of the mess. For sure. But there's and I was one of those there. people. I was one of those people. And that's like, that's part of why I wrote the book is, uh, and I, I talk a lot about the biggest mistakes that ever made in business and friendship and life. And it's because I, I can't stand this perfect subscription. Like if you were born into a perfect life and then had a perfect life and made perfect decisions, one, two, three, then you could make an awesome company. Like that's just not the way the world works. So you know, I tried to comment this concept that we're talking about right here and in the book as like, look at, it's messy. That's part of the creative process. And what we are doing is we're creating this one precious life. And we realize that it is that you are the architect of this. And anytime you, you step out of that expected, that comfort zone, that groove, and you do it once and you survive, you may be a little uncomfortable, but you do it once, your body learns a little lesson, your, your heart learns a little lesson. And when you can be in service of that just one more time, it's just when the passion and the joy and the, the feelings that you get, this connected feeling is 1% greater than the shame that you feel for disappointing others. And you survive that 1% gap, you survive that moment, that is a license to do it again. And then you are invited to do it again. And then you start to realize that, oh my God, this is the thing that's been missing. This paying attention to this intuition that I was told to ignore because it made me want to do crazy, weird, different things and not get a nine to five job and not, you know, go to the right school and not do the, you know, fall in love with the right partner and all those things that we've been programmed. When you can realize that if you can flip that on its head and even for a moment, teach yourself a tiny positive lesson you get the courage to do that again and again. And that is what at the end of this one precious life is one, you know, dawn till dusk that we get that makes the life to me worthwhile. Perfect. I think when we choose ourselves, the universe will will back us up sometimes in small ways and sometimes in big ways. And I think about a moment in the book, Chase, I think you had taken a break from your PhD and you described working at REI. You're working retail. Your parents, people have these ambitions, big goals for you. And you're working retail at REI. Minimum wage. And then you decide to get the courage up to show some fo- actions. Right. Minimum wage. You get the courage up to show some action sports photos uh, to a big honcho there. And they end up paying you, I believe it was five or $10,000. I'm guessing moments like that that aren't necessarily normal are moments that reinforce the journey for sure for sure 10 yeah, yeah it was 10 grand and that was more than i'd made the previous year by the way and you know i, I basically <laughs> i got up enough courage to you know having looked at the the material that i was using in their marketing and said wow you know i'm going skiing and snowboarding and skateboarding and climbing and fly fishing and doing all these things with my friends and the pictures that i've taken with this camera that my grandfather gave me when he died i think they're better than these things i'm seeing in their marketing materials and so I did. I made an appointment with the 
think it was the merchandising lead at the time and and said, I want to show you some pictures. And I think it was, if it wasn't, I think it was on the spot. The first, like we had a little impromptu meeting and then like the first real meeting where I like, brought in the portfolio and she gave me 10 grand in exchange for being able to use, not even own, but to use a wow. half a dozen pictures. And my head exploded. <laughs> it was like, wait a minute. And, and, you know, again, this is that time where you, I stepped out of my comfort zone. I did a thing that, you know, all the best stuff is on the other side of the fear of uh, fear. I was afraid to do it. You know, it was when I was still going to graduate school, I was still in that PhD program when that happened. And it was the moment that I first taught myself a tiny lesson and that it, in saying no to the things that everybody else wants and saying yes to what you want, um, and essentially showing up for yourself. That, uh, that, as you said, the universe can reward that. It gives it gives the universe an opportunity to reward you because you can't you can't live in denial. You can't pretend that you don't want something. Uh, if you do for for long enough, the universe, you know, I think it it learns a tiny lesson that you don't actually want it. So by showing up for myself, um, I was able to you know hit that first step in the staircase that ultimately led to you know a career and a life that I I would you know I would. I'm so, so grateful for, um, but it's just, it, it started out incredibly messy and it's, it's a really important lesson to take away from the show that it's not pretty and it wasn't pretty for me. And I don't want to make this out to be some hero's journey shit. This is like, you know, this is disappointing. A lot of people when you, you know, I borrowed money from my parents for school. I went in debt hundred K for student loans. These are like serious problems or repercussions of quitting the things that I did for other people but I would do it all again in a heartbeat. In fact, I'd do it 50 times faster. I love it. Well, that really, the takeaway for me right there is just reminding folks that you may have dreams, but your, your dreams need encouragement to see you taking action each day. Even if that is that one degree you talked about, that 1%. I have one last question for you. And it's a big question, but I think you're going to be able to do a good job to, to unpack it. Making that big decision to pursue the path that Chase wanted to pursue, which isn't always easy. And right now, someone's listening to that, listening right now, thinking, man, I have a decision to make. And the question I have for you is it takes courage to do that. And something you mentioned towards the end of your book is the journey to being able to establish your own POV, your own point of view. And I'm curious, even when you made that decision, had you established your point of view just yet? I, I'm just really curious where that courage came for you to mm. lean forward into that as opposed to flinch and go the other direction. Oh, man, you're good. You know this. I don't, don't let it go to your head, but you're good at this. <laughs> Appreciate the question. Um, we're sold a map. We're sold a map of go to these schools, get these jobs, live these lives, high five with these people and everything's hunky dory. And I don't know anybody having deconstructed my own life, you know, before this big decision and after and just dissected the lives of my, my friends and, you know, many of the world's top performers and across numerous categories. And the common thread one common thread is that they were all sold a map just like i was go do this and be this thing and then you're going to have happiness and you know and then right off into the sunset and ignoring that and not buying the map that culture sells when you look at whose life looks like that and the answer comes back zero 
that should be a wake-up call. And it was for me, it was, wait a minute, we're sold this map, the map that says start here, follow this dotted line, and then end up at the red X over here where the riches and the, the good life exists. Nobody I know had that happen. Sure, there's you know all kinds of stuff. You might have like tried to live that life and there's you know plenty of things get in the way, but it just didn't look like the map that we were sold. And so I'm starting to say like, wait a minute, I have an intuition inside of me. And this is that thing I said, learning to trust that just once you learn a tiny lesson. To me, intuition is one of the most underrated things. And the science is, is evolving pretty quickly that, you know, it's not just that we, we learn that the rational mind, the brain that we were also told was the most important part of us. And I can see plenty of reasons why we'd assert that, but it's actually kind of slow and it's prone to bias and to failures and to all these things. But the whole body's decision intuition, if you will, that's like the cells in your body learn tiny lessons every time something happens to you. And why not be, it might not be in quick, you know, in RAM, in your RAM, like in, in the brain, your body knows these things. And starting to listen to my intuition was such a powerful thing. And I realized that we're sold a map and we should ignore that map. What we should listen to is our compass. We're all given a compass and the compass is not going to show you the whole picture. It's just going to give you a direction. It's going to be a calling in the distance that it's your job to walk to. What is your true north? The cool thing is that these things are inside you. And if you don't know where to look, look to your past. We've all had these moments where we felt great. What was the environment that we were in? Go back. I don't care if it was when you were 12 years old. What kind of people were you around? What things were you working on? What were you curious about? How were you spending your time? When in your life did you feel great? And what was going on then? And how can you replicate that? That is a compass. Does this person, this relationship, this job, this fill in the blank feel good or bad? Does it bring me up or down? Does it make me feel big or small? And if you can start to pay attention to that compass, you will be rewarded and you do not have to see the whole staircase. You just have to see the next step and walk toward that call in the distance. Remember, no walkie, no benefits. Standing, standing in place, sitting on the couch, thinking about the next thing. This is why I'm a huge advocate of action over intellect. You can't actually think your way into this stuff. Of course, space and time, taking two steps and reflecting, taking another two steps and reflecting, that's ideal. But just know that nothing happens with no action. Man, that is just uh, everything that I needed to hear. I think everything that <laughs> oh, listeners Thank need you. to hear, reminding us of the compass. And, and now, even now, as I hear you say that, the title of the book even speaks to me more, Creative calling. Uh, it makes even more sense and it's even deeper. Uh, and for folks who are listening right now, I couldn't recommend this book even uh, even more, even though I've read it a couple of times and got an earmarks and all that, though I haven't done my art on the cover just yet. Chase, man, I, I want to say thank you for taking time to have this conversation. You've shared so much. Uh, as mentioned earlier in the interview, you've been generous, uh, not just with me over the years and our relationship, but obviously you've been generous to the, to the whole world and being willing to share your gifts to share your talents, to share your, your insight. And it doesn't go unnoticed, man. So I just want to say thank you uh, for listeners. Everything that he talks about, his books, where you can find them online, he's easy to find. We'll all be listening those. So this is just a big thank you to you, Chase. Well, much respect, man. You know how much I appreciate, admire, and respect you and your work. Um, I'm so excited about your book. Um, thanks for... Uh, give me the heads up that it was going to be coming out when you were working on it early on. Um, I can't wait to get my paws on it and I'll be one of the pre-orders. 
um, when you first have that Amazon link or the BNN link or whatever it is out there, I will jump right on it. Um, I'm very excited about it. And it's just, it's been a treat. You're a gracious host, always been a big fan of what you do. Even back when you had that big ass hair and you were on MTV. (laughs) (laughs) Oh man, the various chapters of life, right? The various chapters of life. Again, Chase, thanks a lot, man. Appreciate you. Thanks for having me on the show. Thanks for listening to the Best Thing Podcast with Antonio Neves. Join us next week for more stories that'll help you see the world through a new lens. For more resources, go to theantonioneves.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, we ask that you share with a friend and be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode.